Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hey everybody, it's Eli from The Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, I sat down with Andy Hawkins, once again, our senior transportation reporter. We talked to Aurora CEO, Chris Ermson. Aurora's a new self-driving car startup. They're really focused on the software package, not the cars themselves. But Chris is a really interesting guy. He used to be at Waymo, which is Google's self-driving division. He was at Carnegie Mellon, which is a hotbed of self-driving research talent. So we talked about the industry, why it's so crazy, why all the people are suing each other, why the talent he was leaving from one company to another, how hard it is to develop a self-driving car. We talked about the first line of code they sat down and wrote at Aurora. It's probably not what you think, and it's way more complicated than I expected. We also talked about whether it's going to happen. This is the first question I ask every self-driving car person that comes on the show. Is this going to happen? They all say yes, because they all run the companies. Their timelines are different, and the way they think it's going to happen, uh, usually widely divergent. So super interesting conversation with Chris Ermson, CEO and co-founder of Aurora. All right, we're here with Chris Ermson. He's a co-founder and CEO of Aurora, which is a self-driving car company. Welcome, Chris. Thanks for having me. I'm joined again by Andy Hawkins. Two weeks in a row, Andy. Hello. Yes, I'm taking over the Vergecast. The person who understands what's going on in transportation, mm-hmm. our senior transportation reporter, Andy Hawkins. So, Chris, you now work at Aurora, which is like a self-driving car tech company. Give us your history. You are Google before? Yeah. So I've been working in self-driving cars for roughly the last 15 years. So I was at Carnegie Mellon uh, as a grad student then on the faculty. And there I took part in the DARPA Grand Challenges, which were these kind of robot races the Defense Department put on. And uh, and then back in 2009, went to Google, helped found the self-driving car program there that's now called Waymo, mm-hmm. um, led engineering and ultimately ran that program for a number of years. And then back in 2016, left and... Spent a few months trying to figure out what to do, and in that time realized it was a chance to accelerate uh, this technology coming to market through pulling together a great team and then working in partnership with the rest of the transportation infrastructure and founded Aurora with uh, with Drew and Sterling. And, you know, we've been off to the races for the last two years. I want to get into self-driving cars. Sure. My interest is actually the technology, but I, w- I just want to take one step back. It seems like the market for people who know how to make cars drive themselves is crazy. Right, like, and you named some of the biggest players. There was Carnegie Mellon. Half of that team went to Uber. Then you went to Google, which sued. Like, right, like, there's like, there's all these people. Yeah. Why? Why is this industry 
as fluid, as contentious as it, it seems, at least from my perspective on the outside. I, I think there's a couple of reasons. One is it's a new industry. And I think anytime you have a new industry, there's a lot of dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a lot of, um, you know, flowers blooming and, you know, mixing and whatnot. Uh, I think the other is that the technology is really great for capturing people's imaginations, right? We've We've all, well, almost all of us, probably everybody who listens to this is ridden in a car. <laughs> uh, and, you know, and we've. A long running joke on the broadcast is we make people pull over in their cars to tweet at us. Oh, excellent. <laughs> so, when you have so, so, yeah, car, so, like, so they a, don't even need to pull I over have anymore. Invested interest yeah. in these cars driving themselves. Yeah, yeah totally. And, and I think that, that most of us had the experience, you know, there's times when we've really enjoyed driving a car, and then there's a lot of times that's kind of sucked. And so the fact that we get to work on something that, can transform the way people, you know, get around, the way our goods get around. I think that captures people's imagination. And I think that the opportunity here, both to make the road safer, to um, to make it more efficient, to give better access to people, and ultimately to build a heck of a business, uh, I think is is compelling. So you were, you were at three places. Obviously, the university is a research-oriented yeah. place. You're at Google, which is a very commercially-oriented place, and Waymo's got cars on the road now. Yeah. What is, where does Aurora fit? So Aurora, you know, it, we're a startup. You know, our mission is to deliver the benefits of self-driving technology safely, quickly, and broadly. We think about it as building the driver. So we don't want to build the car. We have a tremendous amount of respect for those people. We don't want to go build Uber or Lyft or UPS. We have an incredible amount of respect for how hard that is. We just want to build this capability to get the vehicle from one place to another and then work with partners to have it go and serve people. So you, you want to be one of the many, many suppliers of the automotive industry? Well, we don't think there'll be many, many people who can do this, right? Okay. We, we think actually building the driver is really hard. And we imagine ultimately this, you know, what, what's now probably 100 companies working in the space will we'll probably consolidate down to a handful. Mm-hmm. And we expect to be one of those. Why do you is – is that a technology reason you think it's going to consolidate? Is it a capital reason? Is it – Yes, it's it's all of them, right? I, I think it's really hard. It's a very complicated problem. It's one of the more complicated engineering problems where, you know, if not the most complicated engineering problem we're trying to solve right now. The number of people who have deep experience in it is relatively small. You you know, you talked about the fluidity and kind of mm-hmm. keep moving around. Well, the way you you win is kind of pull those people together and have them work towards a common goal, and that's what we're we're trying to do at Aurora. And then ultimately, I think the the technology, once we start to get it actually really deployed and serving people, right? You, you know, people talk about there being self-driving cars today, but there aren't. Yeah. They're not really out there yet. Once we start to really see commercial scale happening, there'll be, an, you know, there'll be evidence that the system works well and is serving people well. And so that'll start to kind of build a bit of a flywheel, I expect. So let me ask you, you actually said you were debating this over the weekend, but this is the question I ask every person who comes on our show and talks to us about self-driving cars is, is this going to happen? Is this real? Uh, yes. Yes, it's going to happen. <laughs> okay. You, what, on what time frame? I think you're going to see small-scale deployments in the next five years. Mm-hmm. And then it's going to phase in over you know, the next 30, 50 years. And do you think the, the model is the same as, you know, I don't know, we had the CEO of Ford Mobility in here. And he's like, we're going to do level two and then everyone's going to be comfortable and we're going to – we're going to skip level three because that'll make people crash their cars. And we're going to – do you think it's that stages of adaptive cruise controls get better or are you taking the steering wheel out right away? So we're not taking the steering wheel out necessarily right away. But no, I don't think it's a continuum. Mm-hmm. All right? I think that this level two driver assistance capability, I think that's great. Right, that That's, that's making people's lives a little bit better. But it's very different than self-driving capability, right? Driverless mm-hmm. vehicles. And that's what Aurora we're focused on because we, we look at all the, the big players in the automotive space and 
they know how to do driver assistance. And it's really a problem of is the product compelling enough that the consumer wants to buy it for the, you know, the, the price they can sell it at. When we think about driverless vehicles or self-driving vehicles as uh, you know, the level four and five from the SAE standard, mm-hmm. that's where we see a transformation. That's where you can sleep in the car. That's where the vehicle can be deployed as part of a transportation service and you know, give you a ride, then give me a ride. Um, and we can share the benefit of that together. And I think that's where the economics swing. And that's where we see the biggest social good for the uh, for you know for cities like New York and and San Francisco. Will they be personally owned vehicles? Do you think? Will they be part of a commercial fleet? What do you think is going to be sort of the the breakdown there? So so I expect this will come to market first as part of a fleet. I think that the just the economics again that that's where it makes sense. If you could imagine. You know, let's say we're a few years down the road and the kit for the self-driving capability, I don't know, is, is $20,000 worth of, of stuff, let's imagine. That's really, that's really a premium to pay on top of the price of a car. Whereas if that car is out and actually you know, contributing to commerce, right? It's people are paying to get rides in it or people are paying that vehicle to go and deliver goods, then the economics suddenly make a ton of sense. And $20,000 sounds really cheap. And so... I'm pretty convinced that's the way it comes to market first. And the good news is I think that's the way that we get the social good because if this really comes to market as an expensive feature that, you know, rich kids used to go send out to to run errands, you know, I joke about fetching ice cream for them, right? That's just going to create more traffic and that's not really helping anyone, I don't think. It's like the zombie car phenomenon that I've heard. Yeah. Spoken of. I hadn't heard just of this empty song. cars. You haven't heard of that one? Just <laughs> empty cars yeah. in the streets fetching ice cream and you know, Uber Eats deliveries for people. Jeez, yeah. Let's, let's grim. Let's not do that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so some of the recent news around Aurora was that you guys just received a very significant investment from Amazon over yep. half a billion dollars. Uh, what, what do you think Amazon's interest is in Aurora? What, where, where, is, where are the sort of uh, the overlap here? Presumably they told you. <laughs> well, I, I think you'd have to talk with the Amazon guys about what they're thinking. But I, let, me, let me tell you what, what we think about it. Right? Yeah. So we see Amazon as this, you know, this incredible company that has both uh, world-leading capability in, in cloud, which is an important technology for us as we're building uh, what we're doing. Uh, and then on top of that, they're – you know, they're just an immense logistics company, and Aurora's in the business of building drivers. And so we think ultimately that'll be a, you know, a way that we collaborate. Is your, when you say, uh, you said earlier, you can sleep in the car. Yeah. Is that your North Star? Is there just a picture, like, on the wall of your office of somebody asleep in the front seat of a car? No, that, that, that's not really our North Star, <laughs> right? Our North Star is the company's mission, which is to deliver the benefits of self-driving technology yeah. safely, quickly, and broadly. And so we really, I think a lot of our, our, our people think about the you know, 1.3 million people that die globally on the world's roads, right? Mm-hmm. And that is a, you know, one of the leading causes of death, or if not the leading cause of death for people under 29. That, that's incredible, right? This yeah. is the thing where we can bring technology to bear to address it. And then we think about the um, accessibility of transportation, both – uh, for folks that can't, you know, don't have the privilege of driving like you or I do, mm-hmm. and and allowing them to get around with the same kind of flexibility and freedom we have, and then we think ultimately about the ability of this technology to come to market and to serve across socioeconomic boundaries. That New York has an incredible public transportation system, right? I I used it this morning to get here. Mm-hmm. You're you're shaking your head, but 
I think compared to a lot of places in America, it's pretty incredible. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just people who live here. It's Fair enough. It's a C plus. C plus. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that means that, you know, everywhere else in the country, it's an F minus. Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that this technology can can actually come to market in a way where it's augmenting public transportation, where we can actually provide the level of service, you know, a much better level of service at a much lower cost, ultimately. It's funny. I love hearing new startup founders talk about not doing the technology for the technology's sake. Yeah. When you talk about, okay, we're going to make transportation more inclusive. Okay, yeah. we're going to make the car safer. How does that actually factor into the technology decisions you make? Well, we look at it as some parts of it as table stakes mm-hmm. that we're actually – <laughs> the status quo today is broken, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, yeah. The we've had um, two seven thirty seven Max eight crashes. Mm-hmm. It turns out if you annualize, you know, you take the forty thousand people that die every year on America's roads, that's the equivalent of four of those planes crashing a week. Mm-hmm. So we we have this fundamental problem in the transportation system that we have. So we look at that and say. That's pretty profound. We think about the amount of value that can be created by addressing that, both to society, but also when we, you know, we we do kind of in a very cold way look at the business, mm-hmm. and we say we don't have an opportunity to go. We we don't think we add value to um, driver assistance work. Mm-hmm. Companies are doing that well already. Where we do think we add value is the insights we have and the understanding we have about self-driving capability. Mm-hmm. And that means we can go build a business in that space. And it's pretty much green field because the technology doesn't exist. And if we can go and tap into the three trillion miles that are driven everywhere in the U.S. and make you know cents per mile, that's an incredible business. Yeah. So, yes, our company's mission is – Honestly, you know, I've been doing this for 15 years. I've been doing it since before it was sexy, right? We're we're bought into all those social good things. But if you look at the, you know, our ability to go raise capital, we have some very smart folks who care about the economic outcome here and mm-hmm. and they're pretty you know, making a pretty big bet with us. So you're not making like a lidar versus vision decision based on the bigger stuff. You're you're making your own kind of independent decisions and you're saying the other stuff is going to come along for the ride because this is just so much better. Well, we we make a, a LIDAR versus vision versus whatever. Yeah. And, and actually, we don't think of it versus. We think it's a combination of them. Yeah, that was my next question. Uh, right, yeah. because, because that's what you have to do to solve the problem. You know, people – we won't be able to bring this technology to market if it isn't safer mm-hmm. than, than what we have today. And so this is one of those places where kind of the – the, the business interest and the social interest, I think, are really well aligned. Okay, so let's do the nerdy stuff. Sure, let's do it. I was trying to lead it. to it, and you, you beat me to the Oh, the I'm punch. sorry. That's no, great. That's how it's supposed to go. Everyone else is supposed to be smarter than me. Why, why else are people listening to this anyways? Yeah, they want just, the nerdy stuff. Yeah, they're here for it. So Fair describe your technology. Like, there's a lot of competing ways to do this. Yeah. It seems, at least from this conversation so far, you think the incremental improvement of driver assistance is not the way to go. That's handled. N- not going to get there. You don't, yeah. you don't think it's going to get there. Yeah. What is, how does your system work? So, so our system, um, you know, we, we talk about it as version 2.0 of the self-driving car technology. Yeah. So uh, we were able to bring together founders and team that have spent a lot of time building this technology. So our VP software engineering used to lead SpaceX's software team. So these are the guys who land mm-hmm. and launch rockets, right? That's pretty cool. One of the co-founders of Ross works at Aurora. This is the big robot operating system mm-hmm. which a bunch of people use. So, so we, we've taken that experience and we've said, okay, what 
what are the insights we have now about how to solve the problem? So one of them is that, yes, you know, deep learning is important. Machine learning generally is super important. But folks who kind of forget about all of the classic kind of algorithmic work that's been done, you know, mm-hmm. things uh, like common filtering and all the, the probabilistic state estimation work that's, that's happened in the past, maybe you could get a machine learning system to approximate that. But it turns out if you actually understand the models, you can do it really well and you, you, know, you, you can do it mm-hmm. much more efficiently. So at Aurora, the, the philosophy is let's go bring the best of the deep learning world. Let's go bring the best of kind of the, the engineered world together to solve the problem. And based on the experience we have, we can kind of figure out where to apply that. Uh, one of the, the examples we talk about is how we deploy machine learning in our motion planning system. Mm-hmm. So machine learning is great because it can pick up on, on feature vectors and whatnot that our engineers maybe don't intuit. The challenge is you don't know exactly what the bounds of its behavior are going to be, particularly in, 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 you know, in situations that you may not have encountered. And so the way we, we address that Aurora is we actually encode uh, invariants, which are effectively rules that the system has to maintain a, as it's operating. So an easy example of this is we force the vehicle to always keep enough distance, enough time really, between it and the vehicle in front such that if the front vehicle hits the brakes as hard as it can, we can sense that, react to it, and avoid a collision. Mm-hmm. And so that invariant is coded and wrapped around the, the machine learned system that is then within that set of constraints saying, okay, given all of the infinite ways we could have turned the steering wheel or pressed the brake pedal or the gas pedal, what feels most natural? What, what kind of behaves in a way that mm-hmm. is, is kind of a reasonable approximation of the way a human would, would drive? So do you have to recognize the vehicle in front? So if you're in front of like a delivery truck versus a Ferrari, you know the Ferrari's going to stop faster. Uh, we, we we don't actually. Okay. We we kind of make a pessimistic assumption uh, <laughs> about the you know about what might happen. An unmaintained Ferrari. Uh, yeah, <laughs> worn out. Or, or, or well, actually, it's it's kind of the other, right? Is that we assume that the the package truck has super brakes because that's you know that's that's actually the more difficult oh, thing, right. right? If it slows down more slowly, we've got more time to. Yeah, so I, I've I've been told from folks in this industry that that prediction is a very hard, sort of hard nut to crack in no all of this. Could you talk a little bit about how you guys are approaching that? Yeah. So when we think about the stack for self-driving vehicles, right, it, it, it starts with you got the sensors, you know, uh, observing the energy in the world. You then got the the system that's estimating the state right now. Uh, and then you're trying to figure out how's the world going to evolve over the next five to ten seconds. And then the motion planning system f- uses that to figure out how it moves through the world. And so we are using human driving experience to kind of build an implicit model of what what the world will, will do over the next five to ten seconds. And then the combination, really it's What's interesting about one of the things we're doing at Aurora is we're actually closing the loop around both motion planning and perception and, you know, also through that prediction. And what's kind of cool about this is the way that I've seen this done in the past is machine learning was primarily applied to the perception system. And the perception team would go off and they'd kind of learn as good a model as they could. They would spit that out and it would have some kind of noise and, and, and issues with it. And then the motion planning team would say, okay, we're going to go implement a feature set and we'll use that model. So they go churn away at it and they deal with whatever the noise characteristics are. Then the perception team says, hey, we just spent the last three months. We've just kicked out a new model. (laughs) Um, And so then it hands off to the motion planning team again and they're like, 
oh, well, that's great. I'm glad it's so much better. But now we have to go and retune everything again. And so they kind of get stuck, you know, being, getting swung around by the perception folks. The way we're engineering the system at Aurora, and this is uh, this back to this kind of V2 idea, is to close the loop around both mm. so that as soon as the perception guys have done whatever magic they've done, you know, the, the motion planning team can then basically overnight incorporate that information, that, that new model into their their way of doing business. Why was that? Why is that not possible in other places? Because it's not obvious how to do it, right? Uh, right? So, yeah. so this, you know, this is uh, one of the things that Drew Bagnow, uh, one of our co-founders, brings. So he's, you know, he and I have known each other for the last twenty years. We went to grad school together at Carnegie Mellon, and he's one of the world's experts in machine learning applied to robotics, applied mm-hmm. to in particular to motion planning. And so this is kind of a big chunk of what his career has been is how yeah. does he how do you smartly apply machine learning to that and so that experience kind of shines through and and for me Drew and I had never really worked together in the past mm-hmm. and so um, you know I, I had a great bunch of people I worked with at Google and we did some very cool stuff and since working together with Drew what's been great is there's a few things where you know he said you know we're, we're going to solve this problem like this you know my intuition is like no Drew you're crazy that's a terrible <laughs> idea but you know that the but okay, let's give it a go, and then we do, and it turns out he's right. Give me, you give know, me he's a, super an smart. Well, uh, in particular, this this kind of model for closing the loop around around mm-hmm. motion planet—it's kind of hard to get into the details of it. But it was not obvious to me that you know investing the energy we we did up front was the right answer. My instinct is let's go out, let's get something on the road, let's try it, and you know iterate. And his was no, let's let's actually take a moment and think here. And, you know, architect a system so over time, as we get more data, it will automatically improve. And, you know, I'm like, okay, that's a great idea, but how do we do it? And, you know, he came up with an approach with the team, and, and that's, that's rolled out, and that's exciting to see. I'm going to take a quick break for an ad. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. 
So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Okay, we're back with Aurora CEO, Chris Ermson. Let me ask you a really, this is going to be a dumb question. I have my doubts. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a good show that I put on. Um, <laughs> okay, you, you start a company. Yep. You're, you're a self-driving car engineer. You've been doing it for 15 years. Yep. You call your friend. Hey, we've never worked together. It's great being in school with you. Let's start this company together. You call some other friend. You're all yep. in a room. You're in the conference room. Yep. What is the first line of code that you write? <laughs> what was the first line of code we wrote? Um, you know what it was actually. So the, the I think the first place we started was building the. <laughs> this sounds really boring, but it was the the representation for the position of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. So you know, so so a vehicle once moving through space, it's got you know X Y Z roll pitch yaw and some you know speeds, and this is another one of these places where it's actually kind of one of these geek out math things. Mm-hmm. So, so, you know, historically you would use, uh, X, Y, Z and a, you know, a rotation matrix, but rotation matrix is, you know, it's got some problems where you, you kind of have these singularities in the representation and, you know, things don't behave well. So you say, okay, we're going to go use quaternions instead, because that's a much better, ret- you know, representation. And that again has some, some problems. Can and, you say that word, quaternions? Uh, sorry, quaternions. It's, quaternions. It, it's a, a four dimensional vector that you okay. use to represent rotation. This is what we're here for. Yeah, this is, this is <laughs> my heart. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. I, I'll, you want me to say it more slowly? Yes, you know? please. <laughs> Quaternion. Quaternions. <laughs> <laughs> like, All right. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, th- that, that's kind of the hotness for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it turns out that this is even cooler stuff called um, uh, Lee Groups. And one of our engineers, Ethan, it turns out if you go to uh, ethanead.com, mm-hmm. it is basically the world's repository of information about Lee Groups and Lee Mathematics. Mm-hmm. And it turns out this is one of these very, really interesting ways to represent transformations through space that have none of the problems of rotation matrices or quaternions. And yet, you know, I've been doing this for a very long time and had never done it before, never used it. And so, you know, the, as we got started, this was like, this is the right way to represent. This is the mathematically beautiful, correct way to do it. And so that's what we started with. And from there, we built out the local state estimation. So integrating the inertial system and the GPS to figure out, and the wheel encoders to figure out how the vehicle's moving. And then the global localization. So this is where is the vehicle in the world to a really high degree of accuracy. So, or high degree of precision, you know, 10 centimeters, you know, tenth of a degree kind of uh, mm-hmm. resolution. So you you build that stuff. It sounds like that's a big, a big leap of intuition and logic to get to where you are. That was pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then you're like, well, we need a map. We're just going to call here maps, and we're just going to buy a map and stick it on the map. Yeah, we thought about that, and and in fact, when we founded the company, you know, Drew and I said. We've built maps in the past. We've yeah. done a lot of this. I mean, we you're are, at Google. I mean, we're, it's we're, like you have access. <clears throat> you just don't pick up the phone, right? Well, we, you know, even at Google, we we built custom maps for yeah. the self-driving car project. Um, was the, I bet the maps team was like, dudes, come on. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was there was a little bit of that every once in a while. Um, but but you know, in, in our defense, uh, you know, the the maps guys had to produce maps that were being used yeah. by a billion people. And, you know, we had like six self-driving cars. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're the maps team, what are you going to build? Are you right. going to fix the six self-driving car problem or are you going to fix the problem that's yeah. irking a billion people? 
So anyway, di- different products. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we started the company, and you know, Drew and I were like, and I think Sterling as well, we're like, we are not going to build maps. There mm-hmm. are a bunch of companies out there doing this. We will use their maps. And then as we we dug into it, we came to the conclusion that that was the wrong answer. One is that the maps that we were able to get, they were really built by taking maps that were intended for people and kind of plus-plusing them, right? Just making, you know, higher resolution. And what we realized is that the maps that you need for a self-driving car are different, Mm -hmm. right? And you have different properties that you're looking for. You need, you do need very high precision in these maps. And you, what you want is you want to be able to update them frequently because it, you know, it turns out if my, my navigation map is a little bit out of date, you know, I kind of roll with it. If the map of the self-driving car is out of date, well, we have to be able to roll with it. But you know, it, we, what we really want is it to be not out of date, be able to update it very quickly. And so we, we came to the realization that the other, the other map systems that were out there didn't meet the requirements for self-driving vehicles. So we said, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll actually take this on and, and start to build that as well. And now we, we think that's actually one of the strategic advantages we'll have is, is a really interesting representation of, of the world for these vehicles. I wanted to ask you about safety. You brought up the yeah. fact that um, 40,000 people die in car crashes every year. Um, and it seems like on some level, as a society, we've sort of internalized that, right? And we've sort of accepted that as sort of the price of driving a car, having access to cars, and sort of the freedom, quote-unquote, that comes with driving a car. And I'm just wondering um, how you sell safety to a public, especially when, you know, we have a very – we have a high tolerance for people killing other people on the roads. But we probably – I would assume, and it's only happened once, but we have a very low tolerance for robots killing people on the road. So how do, what's, where do, you, how do we sort of bring that sort of into parity, do you think? Yeah, so I, I think that the first is that we we have to help educate the folks who kind of figure out what the rules should be and help them understand the risks so that they can, you know, so, and I'm thinking about folks like NHTSA or the state DOTs, where their job is to, to kind of govern our roadways and kind of manage the, you know, kind of the, the risks there. And so one of the things that I've spent a fair bit of time over the last several years doing is, is engaging with those folks, helping them uh, understand what we perceive as the risks and what we perceive as the opportunities and, and helping prepare them for this technology uh, so they can have an independent opinion and, you know, and do the right thing as, as this technology starts to roll out. I think we have to help educate the public about uh, you know, the opportunity here. I think one of the things, though, that's, that's most compelling to me is that the way this technology has come to come to market, the kind of the safety will come with it. So most people, when they go to buy a car, they, you know, they, they don't really understand the risks of operating a vehicle. They don't really rationally assess that. And they generally don't pay for extra safety features. Because, if, you know, if you think about it, there's a bunch of incentives against this. So the first is that when you go to the lot, um, the cars that are there that you can buy are, are selected by the dealer. And they look at, um, you know, what are the different features they can put in that car and where can they effectively make the most money? And so they have a choice. They can put a $3,000 stereo system in the car they ordered, and that's got an 80% margin. Or they could put a $3,000 driver assistance system in the, in the car, and that's got a 20% margin. And so like, well, let's get more of the stereos because, you know, that we make <laughs> more money off of that. So there's, there's less options there. And then as the consumer... You know, you get to there and you, you have a choice. Well, 
I could buy this thing that's got this nice stereo that I use every day and that I enjoy, or I could have this thing that, you know, well, I'm a better than average driver as 80% of Americans plus believe. <laughs> and so this thing that I will, you know, only use on a really crappy day, which am I going to pick? Well, I'm going to pick the one that's on the lot and that has the feature that I enjoy. And so that, that's a, you know, kind of a long way to get to. There's a reason why these, these, drive, these advanced safety features, driver assistance features aren't more prevalent in vehicles today. It's because the whole system is kind of stacked against them getting there. Whereas the driverless technology that we're working on, the level four capability, people will use it because it is more convenient, because it's a better way to, for them to kind of get from one place to another. They can use that time however they want. And along with that, they'll get a system that is never drunk, that you know doesn't get distracted, that you know isn't tired, and that can see 360 degrees around it. And so the safety will come along with those kind of the convenience benefits of of the technology. Can the can the industry absorb another incident like the Uber incident in Arizona? Do you think because that was clearly such yeah. a setback, and it it, it 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 seems like it's had an effect on on the public's attitude towards self-driving cars, even though it's like, it kind of boggles my mind that they still do like polls and surveys about self-driving cars when 99.9% of people have had no experience with a self-driving yeah. car at all. So you're asking people questions about a technology that they've never encountered uh, a very in the world. Yeah. So, but, so um, yeah, it's, do you so, think, I mean, because it seems likely that there's going to be yeah. another incident as more cars come on the road and it starts to become, you know, sort of yeah. a more sort of hybrid hybrid system of you know yeah. human powered cars and robot powered cars. Yeah, and so to answer your question, yes, I, I, I do believe we we can weather that storm. I think we have to be working diligently to to test uh, safely and responsibly on the roads. I think we need to be building technology where we are holding ourselves to a high safety standard. But we also have to remember that the you know the perfect really is the enemy of the good here. And that if we could cut traffic deaths in half with this technology, that would be as big an impact as seatbelts. But that is still 20,000 people dying you know, on America's roads. And, and what's, what I think is really compelling here is that this is a technology where the driver will continue to get better and better over time. As we deploy the technology, it'll be better than people to, to begin with. As we learn more from what's out there, we can then push improvements to that driver that span the fleet, and all of the vehicles will get better, right? If, if I have a bad event on the road, maybe as I'm out on the road after that, I think about that and I behave a little differently. But you don't learn from it, and you, and, and you yeah. don't learn from it, whereas the whole fleet will learn from that bad experience and, and get better. So I, I actually – I think about this all the time yeah. because I have very nerdy thoughts. Um, I'm sure you do too. Like. It seems like the big increase is when there's widespread vehicle-to-vehicle communication, when all the cars of the road are talking to each other. But right now, like, there's a jerk in a Mustang, and, like, your your system has to just, like, have code that's, like, going to – I mean, I'm just think, literally yeah. thinking of myself as a teenager because I was definitely a jerk in a Mustang. Like, <laughs> like is that the ramp? Like, literally in a Mustang? <laughs> literally in a Mustang. Excellent. One time I crashed my, my Mustang into a bank. This is a true story. The bank didn't <laughs> – Intentionally any... or, like – it really oh, depends yeah. on where you think tension ends and statute of limitations. And I think is probably good begins. here, yeah. um, or uh, I guess understeer begins. Um, is that the ramp? Is that the inflection point when there's like widespread V to V, or is it your computer is just going to? I so I, I think our computer has to deal with it, right? Yeah. Our, this, our software has to deal with it, and I think again, one thing that's compelling to me is that even one self-driving car on the road is a safety benefit because mm-hmm. that that will be a 
a you know a better driver, like a known and, good, right? And 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 that means it's going to create less bad events for other people around it. And as we as we uh, integrate more of these vehicles onto the road, it'll get you know better and better and better. I do think ultimately you know V to V is an interesting technology, but it's not one that I think we can kind of uh, hang our hat on and and, and wait for. So I, I think about my children walking to school in the morning. They don't have transponders on them. Mm-hmm. I think about you know. Well, they have phones, right? Well, the younger one does not, right? <laughs> uh, older one does, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I don't think you can count on and that's like a him having it, right. Too, right? Yeah, right. And then you know, if you think about your old Mustang, it's probably still actually out there. It doesn't have a transponder the, on the it. The kid I sold with you totaled it, but yeah, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> okay. So, so bad example, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> Sounds like that car had a hard life. That car was not treated well uh, by any Jeez. by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I, I, that's I, that's interesting to me. Like yeah. you're you're going to do all this local processing in the car yeah. effectively, and then you're going to have a cloud infrastructure that improves your fleet. Yeah. But that's not going to go talk to Uber's fleet. That's not going to go talk to Waymo's fleet. Well, hopefully, hopefully our fleet. You know, ends up powering Uber and, and Lyft and, and the other folks. But, yeah. you know, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll see how that goes. There's going to be one right? self-driving company. And you're, but it's like you're not going to talk to <laughs> – like we, Volvo's going to get – do something over time, right? Like, yeah, they'll work with us. It'll be great. Sure. Okay. <laughs> well, it's a bold vision. But, like, do you, like, worry that there's going to be, like, resonant, like, nightmare effects of, like, competing cloud fleets? No. I Actually, that yeah. isn't – you know, I uh, – no, that's not one of the, one of okay. my top worries, right? It's, and and – and the reason why is there there kind of is an interoperability standard today, okay. right? And it's it's the rule of the roads, right? It's the you know it's a little loose, but the you know the DMV for New York State or for California, you know, describes how you're supposed to behave. That kind of bounds the behavior the vehicles can take, and I think at that point you're in you know you're in pretty good shape. Yeah, it's funny that you said there is an interoperability standard, and I was expecting. Like a like a white paper reference. Yeah, no, no, it's no. actually just the DMV. It's the DMV handbook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah. Um, but, but it works, right? It, you know, today there's there's literally millions of millions of independent agents interoperating on <laughs> you know the yeah. roads out there, and they do that through this this kind of common standard, which is the DMV handbook. Yeah. When you think about so, like when Andy writes about Waymo, it's always in terms of miles driven. Yeah. Right? Like why why is Waymo ahead? They've got the most miles. Yeah. Is that a metric that you're thinking about as well? No, I, you know, and, yeah. and obviously I was the, I, I, I was there, and it was a really good number that you we were could, responsible we could use. for a significant portion of those millions. I would well, I, I was a small part of of, <laughs> of, of folks you're that personally did responsible for like 25 I, miles. I, I, <laughs> there was actually a period of time where um, I did have the most number of miles. Hey, uh, there's uh, a, like a leaderboard in the, the, the office. Well, it wasn't. You know, we didn't actually have a leaderboard up on the wall, but <laughs> yeah. you, you could cut it by you know who was driving and. Yeah. All right. So miles driven is not miles a metric. Driven. What's your what's your metric? Uh, so so we you know we we look internally at a bunch of different performance criteria. So the way we think about developing is we're going to go. Uh, we've got a set of features that we need to build. That you know things like we need to be able to deal with traffic light controlled intersections. We need to be able to make left turns across traffic. We need to build right turns. We need to deal with pedestrians crossing, jaywalkers. So we we have a collection of these features, and then what we do is we go build a bunch of simulation tests. And we go gather a bunch of uh, human-driven representative data, uh, driving examples, you know, in those kind of environments. And then we we internally set the goal to be able to, you know, here's the the n where n is a you know relatively mm-hmm. large number of tests that the system needs to be able to pass in simulation. Once we do that, then we're we're excited to go see. Uh, to, to then look at you know how's it doing relative to the human-driven data and kind of optimizing within that. 
that's kind of the way we think about feature development internally. Can, yeah. you, can you give us a sense of sort of uh, what's the current status of your of your test fleet? You have cars in California. You have cars in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah, right. So what 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 are, what are they doing right now? Yeah. So so we have eight vehicles. For us, you know, again, back to the miles. For us, it's not about maximizing miles. It's about maximizing kind of learning and data for the fleet. And so every day those vehicles are on the road. What's cool is we we have three offices today. We're in uh, San Francisco, Palo Alto, and Pittsburgh. And we have cars on the road in all three locations basically every day. And that gives us a really good diversity of experiences. So San Francisco is a relatively modern city but high density. You know, Palo Alto is suburban, representative of an awful lot of America's kind of suburban roadscape. And then Pittsburgh is actually a very dense, you know, older city with an older infrastructure. And so by having vehicles on the road across that, we're able to build and learn from that that breadth of experiences and make sure we're not pigeonholing to, you know, super wide open spaces that never have weather, you know, for example. Like Arizona. For example. (laughs) (laughs) So is the idea... Uh, that a car, one of your cars or say any self-driving car company's cars will need to operate within a certain domain for a certain period of time before it can become commercially uh, operational, essentially, before it can start to do the thing that makes the company money? Or will you get to a point where you can just basically take a car and drop it into any location and have it begin sort of doing that task? So for us, we, we're going to need a map first. So we'd have to go do that chunk of data gathering. And then I, I don't know is the, is the honest answer, right? We, we expect that as we get better and better, it'll look more like we can just effectively drop the vehicle into a domain. Because, I, you know, I think about, you know, me as a driver, um, that, you know, I might most of, spend most of my time driving in, you know, suburban Bay Area. But I could also, you know, not particularly well, go drive in Boston. Um, I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, I <laughs> don't do that often. Um, and, and so, right, I, I think as the technology gets more advanced, it will look more like we can just drop these vehicles in places. But I think early on there will be enough lessons and, and you know, to get geeky, you know, we'll, we'll be expanding the ODD, the operational design domain for these vehicles over time. All right, so I want to – we're a little bit over time, so thank oh. you. But I want to kind of wrap up where we begin, sure. which is, is this, this is going to happen? Like, and I, I asked that question again in that way, but more specifically, do you think that the average consumer is going to go out and purchase a car that drives itself for real within 10 years? No, I, I, I don't yeah. think that – I think, again, that this is going to come to market in fleets and transportation services. Yeah. and. I think the economics there are going to be profound. I think the benefits will be profound. Yeah, I think the adoption curve for personal car ownership is 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 further out. Uh, it just the economics makes so much more sense mm-hmm. in the other business model that I think that's where the energy is going to get focused. Yeah. And how long will people have to be in those cars? Do you think in those in those sort of early stages monitoring the situation? Because it seems like it's half of it is sort of a uh, a liability issue, and the other half is a psychological issue. Like. 
Elevator operators. Yeah, right. You yeah. know, like people weren't willing to get onto a, an elevator without somebody inside of it yeah. until they were positive that it was something that they could safely do. So I think in, uh, when I say within the next five years, you'll see small-scale deployments, that's without other people in the vehicle where you know, you'll be able to hail one of these vehicles, get in it, and I'll take you where you're going, or you'll be able to you know, order something from somebody. It'll show up at you know, vehicle pull up to the curb. You walk up, pull your stuff out of it, and then off it goes. And and I think that happens in the next five years. Wow. So where can people keep up with what Aurora is doing besides Andy's terrific reporting? So so we have a blog post yeah. uh, uh, up on Medium, and uh, you know we're at www.aurora.tech. Cool. All right. Well, Chris, thank you so much for stopping by. It was a great conversation. I look forward to getting in a self driving truck that. Takes me wherever I'm going, powered by Aurora. Or a self-driving all. Mustang. <laughs> and literally any technology would have been a superior driver than me. <laughs> it could have been two robot arms connected to like an, an Apple LC2. It would have been better than me. Breaking bungee cord. Yeah. yeah, awesome. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much. All right. That was Aurora CEO Chris Ermson. Special thanks to Andy Hawkins, our senior transportation reporter, for helping me out with that. I'm not going to be on the Vergecast this week on Friday. I'm out in L.A. doing some L.A. stuff. But Dieter and Paul hold it down. Probably have some special guests in the mix. We'll be back next Tuesday with another interview episode. Next Friday with a chat show. Birchcast, keep rolling. Let me know what you think. Tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. Would love to know what you think of the show and who you want me to interview. I live for that feedback. We'll see you soon. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.